you pressed play on this podcast with the click of curiosity. It is another dimension, a dimension of mind, a dimension where nothing is sacred and everything is explainable. You're streaming into a land of both inside and outside of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the midside. Welcome to the midside where every once in a while you need a good flashback. I'm your host, Justin M. Lesneski, the hopeful romantic, and I retroactively and proactively denounce anything anyone has ever said and ever will say on this show. For the farce this week, we've got a lot of football talk, so if that's not what you're a fan of, tune out now. No, I'm lying. You should still tune in because, as always, whenever we talk about sports, we ground it in whatever the overall cultural point is about it. And this episode is kind of a flashback to Belichick your premises. So we've picked sports talk for a very, very specific reason. And if you've followed the show for a long time, I think you'll understand how these conversations are going to track with the overall conversation we've had in our show's history. Now to get to it, let me introduce my co-host. Joining me this trip from his corner office identifying as a woman to forgo his white male gay privilege, William Green. Hello, hello. Yeah, it's a beautiful weekend. Uh, I know it's uh, another hard weekend for you, but uh, coming off a Michigan victory, some exciting UFC fights last night, got in some golf this morning, and good thing I was golfing instead of watching the game. What was going on with the Patriots today? You want to bring that up now rather than later? Uh, <laughs> no, well, we'll I bring mean, it up what's, later. Go- <laughs> what's going on with the Patriots, as always, it has all season. I don't even know if they're 2-8, and 2-9. and nine. I don't even know what the record is at this point. They're just not executing. They're not yeah. executing, and there's nothing you can compensate for when they're not executing. And we'll, we'll get into that discussion uh, in, in, a, in a few minutes here. But it, it's not a total loss of a weekend for me. I mean, Clemson looks like they're turning the corner. Yeah. Finally. I mean they're they're six and four, they're bowl eligible, but what's most important is they beat a ranked Notre Dame team last week and they pummeled Georgia Tech this week. They let the foot off the gas a little bit in the fourth quarter, but they've been playing close games all season with teams that are below their level, and because of that, key mistakes were killing them. Whereas in this game they didn't have any key mistakes and they absolutely throttled them. So Maybe Dabo was right. Dabo, after beating Notre Dame, said if Clemson's a stock by now, and maybe he was right. Maybe we can get the momentum going the rest of this season. And then next season, when we have the 12-team playoff, we can be in it alongside Michigan. Yeah, that would be interesting. You know, it's uh, to switch gears for a second, I, I wish I could have found it. I was kind of looking for a pre-show, but last night I come across a tweet, and someone was tweeting um, the typical sort of... Uh, Hard in the right place for male health thing. And I was like, oh, man, this is perfect for me to bring up to you on the show. And it talked about how it's okay for men to cry, to tell another man that they love them. And like, like listen to all these very feminist or feminized versions of uh, what's okay for uh, a healthy man to, to believe. And I was like, man, I bet you and I, Justin, can come up with a, a, a alternative list for what is okay for a man to do that's uh, healthy for a man. And the first one that came to my mind was um, share their pride in their accomplishments with other men. Rather than being comfortable crying in front of other men, we should be comfortable sharing our our 
our achievements with with other men and i thought that would be lead to a more healthy uh uh more healthy men overall i'm sure there's other ones too but like it just jumped right out at me justin what do you think yeah it's interesting you say that because uh and we're gonna this is another thing we're gonna talk about some pod meets world later in the episode but in the episode of boy meets world i watched this week in the in the rewatch mr feeney talks to sean or no it was last week's episode not not this week's but i'm gonna post it up on my instagrams soon because i i post some short clips from the episodes that stand out to me he's talking to sean about his friends and thanksgiving and he explicitly mentions in the dialogue that he and his friends take pride in each other over thanksgiving dinner and i think that's something that's lost because it's associated with toxic masculinity where i think what you're talking about is intentionally inverted by the more nefarious feminists i don't want to say all feminists right because Technically, you could argue uh, you could argue both of us are feminists because we believe in equal rights for all and and natural rights applying not related to gender or race or anything. And it's just everyone's born with natural rights, the same rights. Uh, but the more nefarious, quote unquote, feminist, I think, try to undermine masculinity by saying, oh, well, what defines healthy masculinity or what defines someone who's truly confident in his masculinity is is crying. Whereas yeah, yeah. in my experience, William, crying, while it does happen, and I'm not ashamed of it, it's either for one of two reasons. One, in the positive sense, it's for, like you said, immense pride or immense happiness or joy, or immense sadness in the sense of helplessness or complete and other failure. So I feel sadness, but it doesn't make me cry. I yeah. only cry when, you know, somebody died or it's something that I'm completely powerless in. It has to be that extreme. And I mean, to wrap it to what we're going to talk about, Mac Jones looked like he was about to cry or was crying on the sidelines today because he threw an interception with about three and a half minutes left when the Patriots were going into score. And it was a totally terrible interception that essentially lost the game and he went over and looked like he was about to cry and has he done that throughout the season no would i say he's a bad person and not masculine for crying no but when i see him to that point i see him as totally broken mentally like he has tried everything he can try and i think he has And because of that, he's crying. Does it make him less of a man to cry? No. Does it make him more of a man to cry? Also, no. And I think that's the issue you're talking about, because really it should be the positive where men are more masculine when they talk about what they've achieved and taking pride in that than when they're crying. And I think it's the same thing with women, too. I mean, the idea that we're defined by our weakness. Yeah. And I think I think you're hitting on the nail on the head. But again, to turn it back to the positive. This is, it's, you have to be vulnerable. Men are vulnerable with each other when they're really seriously sharing the things that they're proud of, right? And uh, I think, in a sense, they're they're sort of right by half, right? Uh, people, men need that connection, and we've been calling everything toxic. And then we've, like, Justin, just as an exercise, I tried to Google what what leads to healthy male friendships. There's nothing. It's all feminized, right? It's all about 
It's all about how women socialize and not anything about how men socialize. Right. And it's crazy. Like, like there, we, we've talked about this before, but I think it connects, you know, nicely to the sort of lost masculinity we always talk about. Yeah. Well, it's like you said, trying to fit masculinity into the box of femininity. And I think, as I said, there are some people who are well-meaning with that. And then I do think there is a segment who is much less well-meaning with that. But I think this sort of line of who's well-meaning and who isn't applies to all the farce we talk about in general. But I also think it applies to particularly the farce we're talking about today. So let's get into it in Life on the Midside. As always, if you'd like to support the show, you can do so through Patreon or Locals. Patreon is per episode. Locals is per month. That's the midside.com slash Patreon or the midside.com slash Locals. We accept any and all support, including and perhaps most of all affirmations. And maybe the reason we say that, William, is because what we want is other people who take pride in the show to tell us that. Yeah. Maybe that's what we mean by affirmations. Maybe that was a silent plea for more masculinity without me even realizing it. Jeez. Speaking of silent pleas, is the rest of the Big Ten asking for help against Michigan? And I'm going <laughs> to ask you about this story, William, because you shared a story, right? It's about uh, the Big Ten has suspended Michigan head coach Jim Harbaugh uh, three games, right? I'm correct, three games? Yes. For sign stealing. But when well, I already hold on, sto- just to be clear, they already suspended him. Now they've resuspended him again. So he's already served Say- games for this. Uh, wait, 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 wait! Explain that to me. Earlier in the season, when mm-hmm. this whole this uh, this whole you know someone on the coaching staff was discovered going to games and uh, games that Michigan wasn't playing, and then reporting back the signs, which that is illegal. Sign stealing is not illegal. That is illegal. It's considered well, we'll get into that in a second. Yeah. But anyways, when that was discovered, the person was immediately fired and then the coach, what our coach was suspended. And then when tell me the, the time period he was suspended in beginning of the season. So like September, August, S- uh, September, I think. How many games? I don't remember. Two or three. Okay. I'll have to look that up. And then this investigation has been going on and they've been waiting for the investigation to get done. Right. To figure out what the actual punishment should be. So. Okay. So this is where I'm of two minds. Okay. The first is fuck this shit. And what I mean by this is, dude, this seems like Spygate 2.0. You already talked about it, right? Jim Harbaugh said he had no idea that a member of his staff was going to other games to steal signals. And when I say other games, he mean I mean, games, his team was not right. playing in instead of he just watching it on TV, which is what everyone else does. To steal a sign. Right. Because you can legally watch it <laughs> yes. on TV and do it, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which, this is why I say fuck this, because do you remember Spygate way back in the day? Yeah. Yeah. Where the the whole problem wasn't that the Patriots were stealing signs, supposedly. It was that it was in the wrong place in the stadium, that the NFL had just changed the rule as to where you can film from, and 
the Patriots were filming in the wrong place. And Belichick literally wrote a letter saying, oh, sorry, we didn't realize we misunderstood the memo. And everyone said Belichick was lying. Do you remember that? Yeah. This seems like the same thing to me. This literally seems like Spygate 2.0. So my first thought of that is, fuck this. This is bullshit. Like, can we stop pretending? Like, can we just... Wouldn't it be easier just to say, go ahead, try and steal signals, do it, you're going to do it anyway? Like, Yeah, in fact, I mean, it's pointed out in the article, Justin, that the, all the other teams that Michigan plays against, they just have a like a Google sheet where they just spread, they, a spreadsheet where they have all, all the signals for Michigan. They, like, everyone else gangs up against Michigan to try and make sure that they know the signals before the game. Well, and that was my second thing. Now, I, ha- I don't have a dog in this fight, okay? I don't really care about what happens in the Big Ten. I'm sorry. Obviously, I have some sort of affinity for Michigan because thanks for Tom Brady, but that doesn't make me care if they win or lose on a Saturday, right? Yeah. Just yeah. like I'm sure like you check the Clemson score and you're like, oh, that's interesting because of you know Daniel and I, so you want to know what's aware. But I have yeah. no illusions of the fact that you care about if Clemson wins or not, right? Like if, if we lose, it doesn't ruin your Saturday the way it annoys me, Correct. Correct. Right. So I don't want to act like I'm a Michigan fan. However, knowing my experiences with the def- with deflate gate and spy gate, convince me that this is not just because Michigan is getting powerful again and they're just trying to find a way to tear them down. Because that's what this feels like to me. Yeah. I mean, they waited until five o'clock on Friday to release this uh, three game suspension so that they couldn't go to right. the courts. <laughs> right through the toughest part of the season, yeah. right? Yep. Penn State yep. and then Ohio State, right? Yeah. Isn't that the schedule? Yeah, it's Maryland next week and then Ohio State. So yeah, Penn, yeah. So Penn State this weekend, which we won. Speaking of crying, the the uh, the poor offensive coordinator who had to be the head coach, uh, he cried at the end of the game. Talk about pressure. They were already on the plane, Justin, when they received the suspension. I, so. I just... So he's like literally flying in and having to have the coach tell him, guess what? You're the head coach now. (laughs) I can't. I can't. Dude, I I, I literally like I can't anymore. How like. Is there a class of people in this country that just think everyone else is fucking retarded? Right. Like and I say that to be crass on purpose. Do, Do they just believe that everybody else is stupid and can't see what's going on? Like. Here, here's my thing. This is my thing about like when I say, you know, remember how I always say the NFL is a billion dollar organization. How can they not like get the simplest things correct? Yeah. Right. I remember Adam Cole ranting, like raise the goalposts. Well, I'm the same way with like, why can't we put a chip in the ball or put lasers on the goal line? Or why do we keep measuring and pretending that that's precise when oh, yeah. we can create chains with, uh, lasers between it on either side of the field so if i line up my marker on one side and somebody lines it up on the other we can see when the ball has crossed or not why do we need refs to measure it if it is precise i'm the same thing here this is the ncaa this is millions hundred millions of dollars maybe billions i don't know how much the ncaa makes off of college football you're gonna really tell me when a game is on a saturday it's professional to do it on a Friday when the team is already on the way to their away game. Now, the argument against this is going to be, well, uh, you know, what's right is right. And it's we don't want them to play a game with a coach who doesn't deserve to, to play. 
who doesn't deserve to to coach. That's not fair. So any suspension as soon as possible is is good, is moral. But I don't understand that argument because you can't say, oh, well, we we need that extra. Why do you need that extra 24 hours? Why can't you do it Thursday? And then also, William, in response to that, Jim Harbaugh is the only coach who knew. Now, I understand he's the head coach, so he's responsible sure, for everything. Sure, he's ultimately responsible, yeah. I understand that, but like, if they're immoral, they're immoral. Why not just make the team forfeit the season? Do you get what I'm saying at that point? Yeah. yeah. Like, This is just philosophically inconsistent. It's logically inconsistent to the point that the only thing I can say is they're trying to get back at Michigan to sabotage them. And it's either because they personally hate Michigan or it's like saying, oh, well, they're steel sign stealers, so we're going to fuck them over. Yeah, and, it, it and just... that's the part that rubs me, Justin, is like even at the, at the game, the announcers were talking about that it was a sign-stealing controversy. And Justin, it's not. People steal signs. That's not the issue, right? Like that's right. that's not the issue here. The issue was a coach went to, or someone on the coaching staff went to another team's game that's the part that, you know, that's the part that's unsportsmanlike for some reason, right? You're only allowed to watch it on TV or watch film afterwards. I mean, I guess, yeah, when you when you start talking about watching on TV or film, other, I, I guess what it is, is back in the day, it used to be difficult to travel to other teams games. So you're going out of your way to do it. So it's unsportsmanlike, whereas it's not going out of your way to watch it on film or watch it on TV. You get what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. That's the best I can say for the rule. But again, to me, that's the whole, just let them all try and steal science. Like, what are we going to do now? Like, say, what happens if in the middle of the game, a defensive lineman figures out the cadence of the quarterback's snap counts and starts timing the snap po- uh, uh, perfectly? Yeah, like is is he then cheating because he figured it out in the game? Because that's still technically sign stealing, is it not? Yeah, yeah, it is. I don't know. It just doesn't make sense, and it and really, I think really Justin, bothers the, me. The other thing that bothers me is the idea that this would have made a difference in those early games. Because hasn't Michigan been criticized for their light schedule at the beginning of the season? Right. I mean, you can't really help it. That's who's in the Big Ten, and that's who's in the Big Ten East. But do you think that really made a huge difference? For some of those games, just well, to, do you think I mean, do you think we to, wouldn't have beat MSU? Because that goes. By the way, that's the not game. one of the teams that that uh, allegedly science was signed stilled from. But that's how bad they are. You don't need to steal signs. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you have that over Michigan State from now on. You can just be like, God, leave me alone. You're, You're so, so bad, bad we didn't even have to steal your signs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But no, this goes back to Deflategate. Where did it make a difference in beating the Colts? No, not at all. When you are blaming it on the footballs, then you're so far down the line. It's the same thing here. Is it really the sign stealing that's making a difference in these games? And is it interesting, William, that they go from, oh, they have a weak schedule to, oh, the only reason they're winning is stealing signs. Why is it that we need to minimize success? Why is it that Michigan is the public enemy number one? Why not Ohio State? That is so interesting to me yeah well, i don't know enough Ohio about State's it it's gonna be ranked over us until we beat them i'm i'm i assume so well and they're doing everything you can to not have you beat them yeah yeah is ohio yeah. state just a bigger brand is that all this is i don't know that's a good question maybe ohio state makes them more money um i don't know that's a good question 
I mean, it's it doesn't make it, like you said, like I said, it doesn't make any sense, but even in the article, they talk about, you know, this is a, the big 10 commissioner is new and he seemed to be swayed by the anti-Michigan folks. Yeah. So, uh, that, that this was a bigger deal than it is. And, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it, but like you said, it's this, this sort of hatred of success that is right. the exact opposite of what we were talking about earlier, where, you know, we, you know, healthy masculinity involves sharing the, with pride, the things that you're proud of, right? Your accomplishments. So it's exact right. opposite here, right? Right. And when we're talking about hatred of success in football, we have to keep going down this path about the Patriots because the big story nowadays is that Bill Belichick should be fired. And, there was an article that, was it you who found it? I think I found it. I don't remember who found it. But it, the article, Yahoo Sports, uh, senior NFL writer Charles Robinson, as the Patriot way dies it out with McDaniels, Belichick, and Garoppolo, we see it was always the Brady way. By the way, William, at what point is Jimmy Garoppolo considered one of the biggest representatives of the Patriots way? You could Jeez. argue Belichick, obviously. Yeah. You could argue McDaniels because he was there forever. But Garoppolo? Like, what about, let's go back to the beginning, Kevin Falk. What about Troy Brown? What about everyone on that defense like Willie McGinnis? Uh, I'm trying to think of, uh, there's a wide receiver, David Patton. Right? What about David Patton? May, may he rest in peace. Right? That's, that's at the beginning. What about Vince Wilfork? Right? What about Logan Mankins? There's so many Patriots we could name as representative of the Patriot way. We're going to say Jimmy Garoppolo, who played for a few seasons and then was traded to San Francisco. That's the first indication this is sensationalist. But this idea that Belichick should be fired, let's delve into it a little bit because of how it represents hatred of the good and hatred of success. The first thing I want to ask you, as an outsider, with the Patriots as 2-9, and nine, Mac Jones in his third year with his third different offensive coordinator with a slew of injuries on defense with a slew of injuries on the offensive line and maybe I would say one good wide receiver pop Douglas. Do you think Belichick should be fired? Here's the thing I have. I feel like I'm in a perfect position to discuss this as a Lions fan back growing up. We spent all our money on uh sanders right all of it Mm -hmm. and never built a team around it the only argument you could have for uh firing belichick is if it would somehow let you rebuild the team but justin i don't know what the salary makeup is right now but is there any big salary folks that are holding this team back right you've got to think forward in in time and are we investing in young players are we building a team and are we getting high high profile high pay uh 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 players ready you know in draft or whatever to build that team right like you said this is this is about this looks like a rebuilding time not a not a, not a poor performance time just based on the facts of the injuries and everything else like there, there's so much going wrong right now that is something that you that's sort of out of the coach's control do you have faith that belichick can build a good team or not that's really what it comes down to is there anybody well, on the team right now that that you're clearly saying th- these are a string of bad choices that belichick has made as far as building the team because i really think that the main job of the head coach is not the play calling 
on that on the day. It's the it's the stuff that happens out of season, right? That's the key stuff that the that the head coach should be doing. Well, the the stuff that happens day of is uh, tactics, and the stuff that happens long term is strategy. Now, there's a lot to unpack in in what you said. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is. Has he made mistakes player wise? And I think part of the reason they're two and eight or two and nine or whatever it is, is because of that. Where since Brady was here in 2019, they've just had a string of bad luck at wide receiver. Uh, they also signed a couple of tight ends a while ago, and, you know, Johnu Smith washed out, but now he's doing decent with the Falcons. So he, a, a few years ago, before Mac Jones was drafted, he had a big free agency period and a lot of that turned out to be busts and there's been a lot of draft picks that have turned out to be busts however in the nfl most draft picks turn out to be busts um the other thing with that william is they have an extraordinary amount of cap space this coming off season because they have not committed a lot of money to the roster now a lot of people are out there whining and complaining because Belichick's also the, the general manager that they're not going to re-sign their homegrown talent such as Kyle Duggar, who I think Kyle Duggar should be a lifelong Patriot. I see him as on the level of Devin McCourty or Rodney Harrison. And people are saying he's not going to re-sign them, so what's the point? But it's what you're saying. Yeah. Why re-sign those players to a high amount of money if you don't have a winning team? You want to get the young players in the right position, then commit the money to the complementary pieces to finish it off before you lock yourself in for long term. Yeah, you don't want to be players. like the like the Lions in the 90s, right? You just don't want to. Right. And I think that's what people are missing with Belichick here is he has this team positioned to succeed in the long term. But what is failing here is the things outside of his control and what i mean by that is you already mentioned the injuries but the main thing is that is completely outside of the control of the coach is execution by the players and i think this is why people are calling it the brady way there well that's the benevolent side there there's the malevolent side right so the, the benevolent side of calling it the the brady way rather than the patriot way is the misunderstanding that the coach is not responsible for how the players execute. And what I mean by that is, if there is a consistent pattern that you put good players in bad positions, then you are responsible for that as the coach. But if you put good player or you put players in good positions and they don't execute, that is not on the coach. That is on the player. The coach's job is to prepare the player to tell them how to execute properly and to put them in those positions. But if you get them there and they are unable to execute, not because of a skill level, but because of an execution level, that is not your fault. It is incredibly difficult. And to use a personal example, you know, I got several girls to the blood round of regionals. So they were one match of winning one match away from going to States. Several of them did not make it. Several of them did. The ones who did, I would say, one was unprepared. And there are reasons for that. I have to assess whether that was my fault or not. The yeah. other two who didn't, one girl was down one nothing. She tried to take a shot. 
She didn't make it. She lost 3 nothing. That girl was prepared. She knew she had to do something. She tried. She failed to execute. Was I mad at her? No. Was it sad? Yes. Was it her fault? No. Was it my fault? No. She tried. The other one mentally wasn't ready and the moment was too big for her. Could I have done more? I don't think so. Was it her responsibility? Yes. Is it my fault? No. That's the way things go sometimes. So to say Belichick is responsible for that, I mean, look, Matthew Slater, Matthew Slater, one of the greatest Patriots of all time, special teams ace, team captain, said it after the game. Belichick is not responsible for the execution of the players. Everything that's going wrong is execution. It's not coaching. And I can say that because if you look at the sequence at the end of the first half, and I'm not going to go into it because it's way too detailed for a non-Belichick Your Premises episode, his strategy in that moment, in the last two minutes of the first half, was perfect. The players didn't execute, so we lost out on points. Right? We lost the game 10-6. We missed a field goal from 30 yards out. What are you supposed to do? That would have changed the full of the game. We would have been up yeah. 9-7 at that point. These are things that are not Belichick's fault. But well, let, me play, let me play devil's advocate for one second. If you know you have, you have a team that isn't executing, is it, is it, could you call out a coach for not making that adjustment in the strategy? Does that make sense? Right, if you know yeah, that your players are not executing. I agree. And he is doing that. He changed the play calling this game. It was much more run heavy. He was more aggressive with the play calling. And switch to Clemson for a second. Dabo Sweeney went for it on fourth down in the game against Georgia Tech more than I've ever seen him do it as head coach of Clemson because the players haven't been executing. And he did that. And Belichick is doing that as well. At the end of the game, after Mac Jones' interception, the Patriots got the ball back with like a minute 30 or something like that with no timeouts. And he benched Mac Jones and put Bailey Zappi in. What did Bailey Zappi do with a minute left? He fake spiked the ball, threw the ball into triple coverage, and it got intercepted. Is that Belichick's fault? Should he have left Mac Jones in? Mac Jones, who looked like he was about to cry on the sideline, he's changing it. He's trying it. I know he rolled the dice there. I knew what he was doing, but people are going to blame him. Oh, well, he didn't draft a good enough quarterback. Yeah. If he drafted the best quarterback available and he's done the best he could, what what can he do if the player's not executing? The yep. idea that it was Brady, look, if you are a good coach and you put a good player in your system, you will maximize that athlete's value. The reason we know Belichick is the best is not because he won with Brady. It's because he maximized his value. William, do you think any other coach would have won six Super Bowls and went to 10 with Tom Brady? No, no one like as you know, Brady was Brady has a mental that needed Belichick to maximize. There's no doubt in my mind, right? We I mean, I know what he was doing at Michigan. And he was, he he struggled at Michigan, right? He he played what two games his fifth year senior year. Yeah, and I, I think that's the also the point people are missing about Belichick is that he it's it's his understanding of the game that makes him so good. 
It's his knowledge of the game. It's his strategy, not his tactics, his strategy. And I think he's looked for quarterbacks that can do that. And I think he thought Mac Jones could do that. And Mac Jones' biggest problem seems to be that he can't handle the game emotionally. Whereas Brady, because of his struggles at Michigan and in high school and being the fourth quarterback on the Patriots roster his first year, had been to therapy and learned how to deal with his emotions and psychology properly, he was emotionally equipped for the ups and downs. Now, do I think Mac Jones has had it hard over his two and a half seasons? Yes. And do I think it was devastating, that interception he threw, because the the guy was open in the end zone and he underthrew it because of the pressure? Yes. Especially to lose that game that Robert Kraft built up so much. Oh, we want to win this game. You know, we're not very good this year, but we want to win this one because we've been trying to get a game in Germany for so long. And now that we have it, we want to win this one. I think all that pressure was difficult on him. Now, what does it say that he was crying on the sidelines? He wasn't mentally ready. And I think that is his biggest weakness is the moments are too big for him. Now, whether he can overcome that or not and become the quarterback he needs to be in order to stay in the league and we would like him to be, none of that is Belichick's fault. That doesn't mean it was the Brady way. It just means that Brady was able to maximize his usage of Belichick's coaching, which showed what Belichick knows and how good of a coach he can be. A coach can never truly be a good coach without good players. Yeah. This this isn't a Mighty Ducks fantasy, William, where Emilio Estevez is going to come in, Gordon Bombay is going to come in and turn terrible players into U.S. Olympic athletes. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen that way. Even in the Mighty Ducks, to make that fantasy work in the second movie, didn't they have to bring in recruits onto yeah. that U.S. Olympic team? Yeah. And didn't that become a, a source of conflict? It doesn't work that way. It's different when you're talking about peewee hockey than when you're talking about the NFL. And I think the problem is Belichick has had issues finding players that he can work with since Brady left, which well, let, let that's me, not surprising. Let me say, it's only yeah, been a let few me years. Say the, the last the last devil's advocate uh, uh, thing. Maybe maybe the chemistry is not there, obviously with the quarterback and Belichick. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. Maybe the argument, devil's advocate argument, is let's find a coach that can coach this team. Do you see how that flips it on its head, though? Right? Instead of saying, instead of believing in the Belichick way, uh, you know, let's get a coach that can actually gel with the chemistry of the team we have now. You can go with that philosophy, but I think that philosophy is very pragmatic, and I think that disagrees with our overall philosophy. I might call it the Rich Rod strategy. Can you unpack that a little bit? <laughs> well, Michigan struggled with uh, with uh, Rich Rodriguez, right, as a head coach. Mm-hmm. And he didn't really buy into the Michigan sort of way, right? They brought him in to kind of mix things up and improve things, but he didn't get the how he didn't get Michigan football, if that makes any sense. Yeah. No, it makes complete sense. And that's exactly what I was just saying, because you bring in a player specific or, or coach specifically for the players. What if the players leave or get hurt? Can that coach then coach other players? Yeah, exactly. Right. It's the idea of, oh, let's select the best available player 
and then change our team around him. As the if Barry Lamar Sanders Jackson method. could have ever been a Patriot. <laughs> Look, I think ultimately what this is, you know, we, I've, we've talked about the benevolent stuff. I think this is malevolent. I think this is purely wanting to tear Belichick down. I don't think they've ever liked him. Uh, I don't think our well, the people press like certainly people. Doesn't, so they're going to take any opportunity to tear him down. Well, not to be a conspiracy theorist, but he comes from a military family. He He's a right wing Eastern European heritage yeah like do you think they're gonna like someone like him he is an old school i don't even think he he might be religious because i know matthew slater is very religious but i don't belichick doesn't seem like a super religious person he seems like a very you know just like right wing small government type of person but also nationalistic as well he's exactly what the press is going to hate on that level yeah that's true but I really think it's hatred of the good. I really, really do. So, look, yeah. you can't buy into these things. Brady would never be Brady without Belichick because Belichick helped him maximize who he could be. And Belichick would never be Belichick without Brady because without someone executing his ideas on a high level, he wouldn't have looked as good as he looked. And that's just the reality of it. When you try to simplify these things, you're oversimplifying reality. But of course, hatred of the good goes into our final bit of farce I wanted to talk about here. You sent this in, um, and I have a first question, right? So this story is about uh, the YouTuber Mr. Beast. Uh, apparently, he built he built a hundred wells in Africa. I don't know if they're all in Kenya, but Kenya is the main part of this story. But the first question I have to ask you, William, is who the hell is Mr. Beast? The reason I ask that is I have heard this name a lot. I've never watched any of his videos. I know he's tried to make like fast food and stuff. This article says his real name is Jimmy Donaldson. What did he get famous for? Well, I guess I would characterize him as a second generation YouTuber, meaning, you know, there's sort of this first generation of YouTube that uh, YouTubers that got really big and most of them have gone away or morphed. Um, He's kind of that second generation. And what he's big for now is... um, these sort of um, outrageously expensive videos, and sometimes they're a uh, lot often they are charity focused, right? Um, or they're uh, you know whoever's the last one touching this you know Rolls Royce gets the Rolls Royce, right? Something like that, right? It's it's these it, it, the draw is that they're very expensive to produce the videos that he's doing, meaning the the prize or the thing that they're doing uh, usually costs a lot of money. But he's also known for doing a lot of this charity work. He does a ton of charity work. So uh, he's... But that's now. How did he, like, presumably, did, was he rich when he started? Or presumably no, he no, started from nothing? No, he just started from nothing on YouTube. Um, I forgot what... I'll, I'll look up what he originally, what his videos were. But it, I think he got big in the, yeah, like I said, the second generation. So he'd be post-2016 YouTube. Okay, so I've never known who he is, but in in carrying on what William was just saying, so it, it does list the countries in this CNN article. Uh, he made clean drinking wells for up to 500,000 people in Cameroon, Kenya, Somalia, Uganda, and Zimbabwe. Uh, he also did a fundraiser to support local water aid organizations, and that raised more than $300,000 by Monday morning. So it could be much more at the recording of this episode. Uh, he's also donated a bunch of supplies to Kenyan schools and 
uh, stuff to villages in Zimbabwe. Uh, because of this, people started commenting on the Kenyan government, saying that the Kenyan government are a shameful, horrible country, a begging nation governed by millionaires. Uh, somebody else said, so Saran Kaba Jones, founder and CEO of Face Africa, uh, an organization working to improve water infrastructure and sanitation in sub-Saharan African said, Africa said, I've been doing this for 15 years and we've been struggling to continue the work because funding, awareness, and advocacy all take work. Uh, William, it seems they weren't trying very hard if <laughs> they missed that Mr. Beast would have been amenable to working with them. That seems yeah. like a branding that, yeah. mistake they made. <laughs> they could have just reached out to him, it seems like. Um, just like say what you want on WWE, but reaching out to Logan Paul was brilliant on their part because he was willing to work with them and he's really good at it. Um, but here she also added overnight, this person comes along who happens to be a white male with a huge platform. And all of a sudden he gets all of the attention. It's kind of frustrating, but it's also understanding the nature of how the world is. And here is my, my supposition here, William, because then, um, a Kenyan politician said that, you know, they're dependent on handouts and philanthropic intervention. And somebody else said, where's the criticism of the government? Well, somebody else criticized the government. But here's my, here's my thing. I think this story perfectly shows how when people say charity, they are not doing it for rational reasons they're doing it for second-handed reasons or what i mean is they're doing it for attention or accolades now they're mad because mr beast is doing it because he wants to and because he knows it can get him more views and continue his business and the claim is he is less moral than they are but i actually think they're less moral because they necessarily fail at their own value system. Listen to what Kaba Jones is saying. This person comes along who happens to be a white male figure with a huge platform, and all of a sudden he gets all of the attention. It's kind of frustrating, but it's also interest, It's also understanding the nature of how the world is. I'm repeating that for a reason. First of all, let's just throw the, the race thing out. The race thing is stupid, and it's baiting, and it's pandering to social justice. The more interesting part is he gets all the attention. That's why you're the founder and CEO of that group. That's what you care about is attention. Yeah, that is all That's they what care you about, care right? about. They don't care about the impact, right? He actually built 100 wells. Are they going right. to argue with that? Wouldn't the better thing to say be a statement here of we are very appreciative of what Mr. Beast said, did, uh, it will have a huge impact on us going forward and help life in the region. We hope that Mr. Beast will continue to be a positive influence here. And we're reaching out to him. If we can establish some sort of a relationship going forward, wouldn't that have been the better thing to say if what you cared about was your work? Mm -hmm. Aren't they only attacking him because they're jealous. He got the attention that they so crave. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of narcissism, isn't it? It's a, it, it is the hatred of the good, but it's also a bit of narcissism. Like, how dare he come in and do something that we are unable to do so rapidly? Well, that link that you just said, 
I mean, this goes with what you're saying about social justice when you always talk about cluster B and victim mentality. Yeah. Isn't it you can only live so long with hatred of the good, with interpersonal hostility, before you necessarily become narcissistic? And what I mean by that is if you're always driving and you're always thinking, oh, man, I got to get ahead of everybody else, right? Everybody else is trying to get me, so I got to get them. If you think that way, aren't you necessarily going to become more narcissistic in the long run? If you're always trying to tear down somebody because of how good they are, aren't you doing it because you're always comparing yourself to them and that's why you want to tear them down? Doesn't that necessarily make you narcissistic? This is, it doesn't Dr. Drew say all roads need to lead to narcissism. Mm -hmm. Isn't this exactly what he's talking about? Yeah. Yeah. No discussion about the impact, you know, in his video, it's, you know, all about the people and, you know, the, the villages they're helping and things like that. But, uh, of course, all the criticism is about Mr. Beast somehow, you know, being the bad guy. I mean, he was already, uh, I don't think we talked about it, but the, he got, he, he keeps getting in trouble for his charity work. They keep calling him out for his charity work. So I, I don't know when this will end, and I, I imagine we'll be talking about this again because I think it's only going to get worse for him. Well, and he said that. He said he knows he's going to be canceled, right? Yeah. And yep. he doesn't care. Now, the question is ultimately how moral is this guy, right? I don't know anything about this guy, but you know my feeling on things. My, it's not even my feeling. It's my beliefs is I don't know where he's from, but I really, He's from really North Carolina. He, North grew up, Carolina. he was born in Kansas. Uh, grew up in North Carolina. Yeah, he's got about 250 people on his staff. This is a big, okay. big operation, a big company. Well, so big this for is, a YouTube company, right? And this is what I would ask: Why water in sub-Saharan Africa? Why that? Because there are so many causes in the world, and there are so many causes local to North Carolina. Why there now? This is the difficult thing when you're running a business such as YouTube. And this is why I am ultimately, William, not a fan of social media and, and YouTube and all of these things in the way it currently is being used. Simply making videos of, oh, I helped the drug problem in North Carolina. And I don't know if there's a drug problem in North Carolina, but you get the idea I'm going for. Yeah. That's yeah. not going to get the clicks and views that, oh, I put 100 wells in sub-Saharan yeah. Africa. And Justin, you're hitting the nail on the head. He's been very upfront about uh, like he's doing, like he's has to make what will satisfy the YouTube algorithm, right? right? He's been very upfront with this and that's, that is how he chooses which things to do. And yeah. he's not ashamed of that. He's like, this is how we make money in order to do the good things. And so therefore, you know, I have to feed the, the, the algorithm. Right. And so, yeah, this is, he probably picked this because it would go viral. I mean, that's his right. goal is to continuously go viral. So there's right. nothing immoral about him saying like this is it like if he picked a bunch of boring charities to work with and did boring stunts instead of the big stunts like he does like the whole thing is is the the his virality has always been around sort of these stunts and like i said these high perceived value things to do right and so that's how he continues to go viral that's that is his job is to do this you said he's not moral but no. And what I mean by that, or you said he is moral, or you said it's not immoral to t- select the way he does. Uh, I say yes, but no. And he, and here's the, the issue I have with that. What you're describing is sort of pragmatic. 
it's pragmatic because should the job of a YouTuber be to go viral or should the job of a YouTuber be to create a certain type of content and keep making high quality content and gathering the audience he can from that. Now, the problem is this is done via the algorithm and the algorithm is basically, it's basically collectivized. It's basically a, it's, it's, I don't even know the way to say it. The algorithm is basically collectivism. It's not individualism. It's what, what is the, the majority doing? Right. Well, what is the collective thinking? What is yeah, the high I don't think, thinking? I would say, though, just I don't think anyone in his core audience uh, or sorry, let me rephrase that. His he does have a core audience outside of going viral and they like these videos. Right. Like I'm not subscribed to Mr. Beast. I don't watch any Mr. Beast videos. They don't even come into my feed. But uh, people like them. Right. People like to see these things. They like to see the good works being done in the world. Well, Again, right, and that, but, I'm not, I'm not see, making a, I, I'm not pushing back on what you're arguing. I'm just saying, like, it, I understand his argument, right? Like, it, and I'm probably not doing it justice, but his argument is no, like, I, this is, this is the channel he wants to build. He wants to be this kind of channel that makes big splashes on YouTube. And that's what you have to do. You, the algorithm is there. Right. And I get that. And I get the argument. I get the audience. But that's my point. By deciding to have that kind of a mission statement for his business, He's necessarily being pragmatic and collectivized. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because the majority are going with whatever the cultural prevailing winds are as far as what is morally good to do. Because ask any of them, why is water in Africa a good thing? Now, I'm not saying there shouldn't be clean water in Africa. But I'm saying whose responsibility should that be and who yeah. should care about that? And I, because... and I would say he takes an incredible amount of pride in his videos. I, if I remember right from like 2018, someone someone like uh, quit or was fired or whatever from his team and uh, accused him accused him of having a toxic, toxic work, work environment because uh, Mr. Beast was a perfectionist. And I think like at the time... Uh, I think he was like, no, we're just, he's like, I am a perfectionist, but we don't have a toxic work environment or something along those lines. Yeah, look, again, I don't know anything about the guy. I'm just sort of trying to figure out, using him as representative of our current society and how to figure out how to approach all of these things. Do you get what I'm saying? I'm not personally attacking him. I think he's, I'm not saying he's a bad person. And I think this is a good example of, like you were just bringing up, the, the fact that, the algorithm is the way it is means that it's only someone who takes this pragmatic approach that can be this way. Right. Right. Gone are the days, gone are the days where, uh, people who individually cultivate their audience get to be this big and this promoted on YouTube. Those right. days were the very early days. Right. Right. And then you turn around and the pragmatic person gets attacked for doing what is supposedly what is supposed to be the moral thing. Because that's what happened to him. So it's a yeah. no-win situation. Well, and that's why he's going to get canceled, right? That's that's why he talks about how that he will get canceled. Because he does have standards. He does have values that he's upholding. Yeah. We might, but might, he not, already, might not agree with them. But uh, look, he will get this is the biggest compliment I'll give this guy. He already knows what he's doing. He yep. already knows the only way to be uncancelable is to not care and just keep doing what you do. And he's figured it out rhetorically you got to get ahead of the curve and that's what he's doing they're going to cancel me whatever i'm going to keep doing this he knows exactly what he's doing to avoid cancellation yeah. because 
it's this is not a Kanye situation where he's doing insane <laughs> things so people Just can be attention. like yeah. his character is terrible. And I'm not saying Kanye is completely terrible. You know I think good Kanye, bad Kanye, that he's 50-50, right? But here, besides a philosophically esoteric discussion about pragmatism, Mr. Beast's character is kind of impenetrable is not the right word I'm looking for. Impunable, is it not? Yeah. I've never looked. Anytime I've tried to look this guy up or learn about him, uh, there's no I've I've never read anything negative or thought of anything negative about him. So he's he's, a, he's, he's getting ahead all, of it. He's seen he's seen as a good a good the, probably one of the last purely good folks at this level, right? Right. PewDiePie's kind of gone off, not in a bad way, like as he he's turned bad. He's just you know sort of retired from YouTube. Well, um, right, and they tried to say he was a neo-Nazi and things like that. Yeah. Whereas yeah. they can't do that with Mr. Beast. Like, he's got nothing. So he knows he's impunable, and they're going to try and cancel him. But what are they going to do? We're going to cancel you because you're a white savior? Oh, I'm sorry. I brought water to Africa. Like, he knows what he's doing. Yep. Now, if you want to think he's disingenuous, I mean, is he the Taylor Swift of YouTubers? I don't think so, but... That's up for you to decide Maybe. because, Maybe. well, I mean, is there any difference between the pragmatism of what she does and the pragmatism of what he does? I don't know. That's a good question. And I don't know enough about Mr. Beast that I think I could do that. I feel like I do know enough about Taylor Swift, but. Yeah. Well, and that's why I raised the question because Taylor Swift in a song says, you know, she's a narcissist and she thinks everyone's a sexy baby. Yeah. So. That's a thought for another day. But you get why I raised the question, yes? Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, we'll leave all of you to think about that. And we're going to move on to talking about art. Let's do it in The Hopeful Bromantic with JML. As always, if you'd like to continue the conversation with us during the week, you can do so by joining our Discord channel. Just go to themidside.com or themidside.com slash podcast. Click on any episode link. In there is the Discord join code. And if you join, you can connect with us and share some farts with us or like some trailers or don't like some trailers. William reacted to a trailer giving away whether he hugged or tackled it in the discord so if did you realize you did that yeah yeah so if you're in the discord you could know whether he hugged or tackled one of the recent trailers for trailer takedown so why don't you join and talk to us during the week because i'm lonely i deal with high schoolers all day i need some like Adult, some adult some adulting. Yeah, some yeah. adulting. Adulting. Dude, I hate the shirts that are like, I'm done with adulting. I'm going to Disney. Why can doing things you enjoy not be part of adulting? I don't Why know. is it when you enjoy things, it's you're done with adulting? Is that not a negative view of being an adult? Absolutely. It's a, you need, someone needs to reframe their brain on that one. It's a common thing. People say it all the time. You know why? Because people have a flawed 
perspective on the world. And I want to talk about that flawed perspective. Okay, so I forget what the name of the segment was called, but if you remember, as I talked about the top of the show, I've been doing the Boy Meets World recap with Pod Meets World. And in a recent episode, they were responding to a season three episode where Sean goes to the trailer park with Corey and there's a run-in with his family. And then Feeney talks to Sean about how, you know, it's family's not about just blood. It's not about the people you're born with. It's the people you choose. And in the episode, Daniel Fisher, who played Topanga in the pod meets world episode, analyzing this episode of boy meets world talked about how she thought this was the theme of boy meets world overall. And she analyzed that and said, here's what she thinks Boy Meets World is about overall. And William, I want you to play that clip, and then I want to talk about it. All right, here we go. And Feeney responds, you don't need to be blood to be family. Ugh. And I I remember we talked about this recently, about whether or not that was actually a Feeney-delivered lesson of the show. Right. We talked about it in our live show. Somebody asked us what the gen- what our favorite Feeney lesson was, and that was the one I said. And I said, I don't know that it came directly from Feeney, but it does. It does. It does. Word for directly word. Directly yep. out of his mouth. And yep. I feel like the thing I love the most about this lesson is if that I had to take a giant step back and say, what would I say the overall theme of Boy Meets World is? I think it is this. And on a micro level, it's Specifically this individuals choose their family, whether they are related by blood or not, and then you take care of each other no matter what. But on a macro level, I feel like Boy Meets World was also speaking to the idea that that's what we should do with humanity in general. It shouldn't just be that we take care of the people we choose. We all need to look out for each other and people in power need to look out for the people who have less power and make choices and decisions based on protecting and representing those people. Now, now, William, boy, that boy, that went that went from a totally different direction than I thought it was going. Well, and that's what I wanted to ask you about, because I have evidence to refute this. However, I want to ask you what you think first, because obviously I don't think you're as versed in Boy Boy Meets World as I am. I'm not as keen on that. Uh, Maybe one of the trailers and trailer takedown. I might know more about those episodes than Boy Meets World, as an example. But uh (laughs) Yeah, you can screw me on Avatar The Last Airbender yeah. later. Oh, yeah. I can't. <laughs> Love that show. Um, so the first half I kind of down with, I can see that as maybe a, a theme of, uh, you know, choosing the people that you value and, and valuing them. That's kind of the way I would put it. Uh, but then what is this going off in left field, literally, uh, at the end, right? I don't choose... I don't choose my neighbors like that. I don't choose the people in my state or my country or the world. Why would I, why should I be forced to value them? Justin, I'm, I'm confused about her logic. Yes. And is there anything you've seen in what you've seen of Boy Meets World that would point to that macro level that she's referring to? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, gosh, I don't know. I like, I, I can't think of any specific things, but I, I, I don't see, I, I don't remember any of the episodes being that collectivistic. They're not because it's exactly what you just said. Right. And it's what I said at the top of the show. Feeney talked about you're choosing 
who your who your friends are, who your family is. Right? He said you take pride in each other, and she even said it. Individuals choosing. You see how she transitioned from individualism to collectivism in her yeah. statement. What I yeah. find so interesting about this is the way people will bend something they enjoy to fit their preconceived notions of why they're supposed to enjoy something. She needs to fit Boy Meets World into her narrative of what morality is rather than addressing her own narrative and thinking, oh, if I like this thing and think it's correct, maybe my narrative needs to shift. Because, and I almost sent this to you as a drop, but there is literally a speech in the final episode of Boy Meets World where Corey talks about what Boy Meets World means. As an adult, he's talking to his younger brother, who's very, very young, and he's explaining to him that, you know, you're going to grow up and the world's going to teach you a lot of harsh lessons. But as you learn those lessons, you're going to have family and friends who support you and you're going to support them back. So there is that point about supporting family and friends in there. But boy meets world. World teaches him lessons and he teaches other lessons. It's in the title. He says it. He even says boy meets world. I get it now. So there's evidence literally refuting what Daniel Fischel is saying, but in order to preserve her own view of the world, she has to twist the show rather than question her own premises. Do you see what I'm yeah. talking about? Yeah. I think we have... it gets back to the Man of Steel being about sacrifice thing. Yes. It's the same exact thing. If you're drinking, let's finish your shot right there. Yes. And I think here in this clip, we have great firsthand knowledge, right? Because we're listening to what she's saying of how someone does that, where we see her literally transitioning from individualism to collectivism. And the way she does that is individualism is micro. Well, we're necessarily living in a macro world. So here's how the micro appear, uh, applies to the macro. Do you see what I'm saying? And now yeah. we also can connect that to, oh, what I've been saying about globalization and the local, and it all connects. So I think we see now how people make these twists, and then they would argue to the death about that. And I think that's the scary thing, is she yeah. thinks she's correct. I think that, that's, a great, that's a great insight. It's, it's, it's blowing up the fact that we aren't a collective organism, right? It's, yes. It's, it, because you, when you make that, that uh, abstraction... In that way, you're forgetting that the individuals making choices are the thing, right? We're not an right. ant colony, right? Right. Right. So I thought that was interesting. I wanted to blow it up. I wanted to show it because it's not what Boy Meets World is about. And it's interesting to me that somebody who is working on the show could fundamentally misunderstand it. Because she's unwilling to check her own premises. That is wildly interesting to me. Yeah, great illustration. Okay, so now let's talk about a recent movie that came out. One that I was excited about. A horror comedy, It's a Wonderful Knife. If you remember, this is the movie about the girl who, on Christmas Eve, stops a killer. But then a year later, wishes she never existed because of the way her family and friends treat her. She says the whole world will be better off without her. This is, of course, a reference to or satire or parody of however you want to read it of the Christmas movie. It's a wonderful life. 
Uh, she then gets transferred into a universe in which she did never exist. This movie is a, a horror comedy because it is a combination of a teenage slasher movie with a Hallmark movie. Now, all of these things, William, doesn't this sound like it would be exactly up my alley? I think you uh, hugged this one. I did. I hugged this trailer. But even that description I just gave after having seen yeah. it, it seems like I would love this movie, right? Yeah, it seems like something right up your alley. I did not love this movie because there's something really weird going on with it that I want to get your opinion on. Now, you haven't seen it, but I still want to see what you think. All right. So here's my one sentence review. Rushed pacing and constricted world beating world building lead to underwhelming execution of an appealing premise. Now it's the underwhelming execution that I want to talk to you about because on a technical level, this movie is only 90 minutes. Now I don't know how you make a movie that you have to show just like, you know, with happy death day or groundhog day. If you were going to show a world and then you're going to show the world being different, you have to spend significant time on exposition and then you have to spend a significant time on denouement and then you also have to spend a significant time on building to the climax. So I don't know how you can only have a 90-minute movie with a premise like this. So that's the first mistake that I think was made. Now, because of that, you can't have a lot of characters and forward from there, you can see how this would be a very constricted movie. But here's the thing that really sort of got me. I can't tell if this movie is trying to be left-wing or not. And what I mean by that is Hallmark movies are very clearly anti-commercialism. Do you disagree with that statement? Yeah, they're very cotton candy and yeah. Right. There are the idea that, oh, we're in this small town and we don't want it to be taken over by the big conglomerate and... Yeah, You know, they're going to come in and they're going to take away what makes our small town special. They're like old school blue collar Democrat, you know? Right. Or look, I don't even disagree with that, William. We're talking about everything being local lately. Yeah. There's decentralization. A, it, we are pro yes. decentralization here. Correct. Which would fit with the Hallmark movie theme. What would fit with the old blue collar Democrat, would it not? Yes. Yeah. Because look, there is there a value for the giant Walmarts? Is there a value for Raising Cane's continuing to grow? Yes. But there is also a value with the small mom and pop shop that only knows that specific culture. Or somebody was telling me about a company, and I think it was Alabama, who they opened restaurants in different parts of the city or the state. But in each different part, it was slightly different for the local area. So it's still centralized, but it's also decentralized in a way, too. And I think that's actually pretty brilliant marketing, and things may go forward there. The reason I'm saying all of this is the villain of the movie is Justin Long. His character is the mayor, but he's also a real estate developer who inherited his fortune from his dad. Now, here's my first question. Do you think that is meant to be Donald Trump? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, there's some parallels there for sure. He's the Donald right. Trump of this town. That's what it seems like because his name is Waters and he wants to put Waters on the name Waters and everything. And he wants to buy an area and make it Waters Cove, which is Although the at the same the time, since Donald Trump is such a caricature of the overt narcissist, right? 
like it, it's impossible to make a character that's an overt narcissist and not have them end up looking like Trump. Well, and that's the thing about the movie. The best part about the villain is in the the bad universe where the main character doesn't exist. They actually show that he has brainwashed the town and he's like, they need me. I need them to need me. I have to lead them. But it's led sort of like the Pride Lands being in ruin of Scar in The Lion King, where the town is basically terrible because this guy's the leader. And it's it's a yeah. very stark anti-government statement, very intentionally. So while it seemed to be like, is this a Trump? It also like my wife literally leaned to me while I'm thinking, is this Trump? My wife leaned to me and was like. He's like Gavin Newsom. There's all homeless people everywhere, and he looks and acts like Gavin Newsom. She said that to me while I'm thinking, is this guy Donald Trump? So I got very confused because I looked at it and I go, you could read him as Newsom too. Yeah, you could. Very interesting in that sense. But then here's what they did, which I want to ask you about because you are gay and not queer. And now you're probably thinking to me, thinking right now, thinking to yourself, why is he bringing that up right now? Well, this is where we're going to go with this. When they confront him at the end, he calls them outsiders and losers. And they're the only ones that can tear down him because they're the outsiders and losers, right? She's not from that universe, so she can beat him. Because in the original universe, she killed him, so he didn't take over. Make sense? That she's the outsider? There's walkers in the barn and Lori's pregnant. Yes, but... Yeah, yeah. she's the outsider because she's not from that universe, yeah. She and her friend, who was called Weirdo and nobody liked, another woman, was the outsider. But here's, you probably already know where I'm going with this. What's interesting? She saves her brother from the killer when she kills the killer at the beginning. Her brother is gay. Her aunt is gay. In this movie, in her regular universe, she has a boyfriend that she finds cheating on her with her best friend in the parallel universe. She finds out they've been in love for, or the whatever universe for three years. And she comes to terms with the fact that they're better together. She falls in love with the weirdo quote unquote girl, the other outsider. And they are in a lesbian relationship at the end of the movie. Now here's the deal, William. I don't really care. Like you can have a movie where the leads are women and they fall in love. And I think this movie could have been fine if it was just that. I am rubbed the wrong way. The fact that the aunt was a lesbian and the brother was gay. Because here's the deal. Statistically, does it make sense that three people in that family... Hold on. Are you making a naturalistic argument here? Well, I'm making a naturalistic argument to make a romantic argument and what i'm exactly arguing is this is a romantic movie it's intended to be a romantic movie so my point is if naturalistically gay people don't exist in that amount of probability within one family why did this movie do this but let's let's take the heteronormative approach here um i would say but that's my point no hold on (laughs) that's my point yeah, yeah, because the heteronormative approach is the normal naturalistic approach. Yeah, correct? yeah. So yeah. If statistically, so if you're yeah, making more I, of your characters think, gay, there's got to be re- a point. <laughs> let me rephrase it. What thematically 
does it help for her to fall in love with the weirdo chick? Is there anything that connects back to the theme and, and her? Well, and that's what I'm saying. Where I'm saying the whole thing is underdeveloped, right? Yeah, because it could work, wording? right? Like I, I'm with you. It could work. It would be a little odd, but it could work, right? Especially right, if you're paying. Say... If you're paying. If it connects back to the teen slasher sort of horror movies, right? Like. Those were always, there was always uh, forbidden lesbian love and and some of those back in the day, right? In the 70s and 80s. Um, Well, right. But that goes back to the rush pacing and the constricted world building where none of it is earned. Instead, it's like, is this trying to comment on the heteronormative toxic masculinity? Is that what they're trying to say? Because like, they don't really make straight people look bad. They're just kind of like, oh, you guys should have been together from the beginning. The one straight relationship. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like they do have the mom and the the dark universe cheating on the dad, but that's out of her grief and everything. She becomes a drunk and a druggie and everything. So it just, it feels like it's an agenda driving it. Do you get what I'm saying? Maybe they need, yeah. From the way you describe it, it sounds like they needed to check some boxes. And so they kind of put this stuff in there, right? Yes. Because my complete argument is, I would have like been I said, it could work. Fucked. It could have worked, right? If it, if it, it w- somehow connected back to the theme of being an outsider, you could play with that and make that work. Right. And that's what I think they were going for. And if they had, like, earned it and had shown, like, she was bisexual or something, they didn't show that. It was just like, wait, she has a boyfriend, and then all of a sudden she's in love with a girl at the end. You know what I mean? And what are we yeah. just supposed to accept that? It, it felt more we were just supposed to accept that everyone is gender fluid or not gender fluid more like their sexuality is fluid yes do you get what i'm saying because here's the deal to back up what you're saying that it could work it could work and you know i'm gonna go a step forward it should have worked in this movie and you know what would have made it work for me a lot more if the brother wasn't gay if the aunt wasn't gay now let's unpack that a little bit why did the brother need to be gay it doesn't add to the theme at all yeah it's extraneous now you could make the aunt gay because the character that first believes her because she, you know, you come back and you go, I was actually your, your daughter. No one believes her. It's the aunt who first believes she was actually related. If you want to make her gay because she's going to identify with her and be her yeah, mentor. Or at least by. Yeah. Right. Well. I'm saying that's a joke. At least. Oh, at least. Okay. Do you <laughs> see how that could have worked? Yeah. You could have made that work thematically because the aunt was the outsider in the family and she saw things that she, the girl saw and they connected and that helped her in both universes. That could have worked. So you could have had those two gay characters, but why did you need to make the brother gay too? Except if you're trying to check boxes and appeal to a certain audience, because here's the other thing, right? We say, you know, people nowadays say, go woke, go broke. Right. And we Mm -hmm. unpacked that and said why it's not go woke, go broke. That's wrong. It's, you know, making the same stories over and over again. That's wrong. And thinking that that, that's the audience. That's the problem I think this is, William. Yeah. The problem nowadays is we always talk about the silent minority, the loud majority. And what are the, sorry, the loud minority. And what I mean by that is that sounds really, really bad, right? It sounds like I'm telling, like, black people who raise their voices to shut up, right? And I'm not saying that at all. 
I'm talking about. There is a group of people, especially online, who act like they're the only fans of something. Yeah. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yep. So you create these niche genres and everything, and people think, oh, to be a fan, you have to do this. It's the same thing in pro wrestling. Anytime anyone who says anything that isn't far left, the pro wrestling fans get mad. Oh, you're a right-wing pro wrestler? Oh, Chris Jericho supported Donald Trump? Oh, we have to hate him and think he's a bad person. Because in pro wrestling, we can only have left-wing social justice people. So Mm -hmm. I think people in Hollywood, because they're in that echo chamber, think they have to put that in everything to pander. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, gosh, it's been years ago that I think we we talked about this, about my complaint that you can't find any good gay characters in cinema. And that was probably like four or five years ago. I complained about that. And we're, we've seen more gay characters than ever in cinema. And we still suffer from, there's no good gay characters in cinema, right? It's always used as a a prop. Yeah. Yeah. Garrick. Yep. But, uh, (laughs) I, I, yeah, I like that movie shelter. I think that's done well, but there's, there's no, it's either they're complete queer and we'll see uh, one of those examples in the mean girls trailer later, or, uh, like this, they're sort of disconnected, right? Like, like they're, they're completely disconnected, right? There's no right thematic. It, it doesn't help with the story at all. Well, it doesn't help with the story and it's not any part of who they are or it's the main part of who they are. Yeah, yeah, it's the extremes. It's either it has nothing to do with who they are or it's all that they are. Right. And that that's exactly what it was. With the brother, it was like, oh, we need to make the star quarterback who threw six touchdowns in the state semifinals gay because we never do that. And then with her, it was like, suddenly she's gay. Why? It's just very strange. But can I ask you one question? Replace Mm -hmm. the weirdo chick with a weirdo dude. Would the story work better? I I still have the outsider theme, right? You like the misfit, you know, misfit. So gender was such a non issue in this movie that I honestly don't think it matters if the weirdo was a man or a woman or a boy or a girl. Does that make sense? Now, in that sense, the argument would then be it would have to be a boy because otherwise it becomes distracting that she's in a lesbian relationship. Yeah, without without any buildup, like you said. Correct. Now, if you want to make it part of the theme of outsiders and not being understood by her family, then you could make her a girl and make her in a lesbian relationship. Or you could make her a girl and they're just friends. There's any number of permutations of this that could have been done and it could have yeah. worked better. It made me it made me question something, and this is the last thing I'll say before I give my rating and we move on here. It made me question the Bechtel test. Because you know how we always talk about these social justice sort of like golden gooses? Yeah. That's one of them, right? The Bechtel test is the test where women are in a movie together. And they don't talk about, or in scenes together, and they don't talk about men. That's the Bechtel test. And the movie's supposed to be good if it passes the Bechtel test. Right. Well, and the, the, the woman's not supposed to be helped by no man. It's supposed to be all women. Help it. And it's, she's supposed to discover her true self in order to survive and be better. Right. And this and movie she was, was good doing all that. along. Yep. And I was well aware of that. I was like, oh, wow, these are two women getting together and they're going to save the day. 
This is passing the Bechdel test. And then they became lovers. And I said to myself, well, either that shows the Bechdel test is a failure, because if there are no men, then they still have to be in love with each other. Or it shows the insidious nature of the Bechdel test, where the real point of it is just to eliminate men. Yeah. Well, the only man you've described, except for maybe the father, is evil. The only straight man, sorry. Well, yeah. So, do you want me to spoil it and explain the the, the complexity of the father? <laughs> no, that's okay. Unless you really want to. So, there is, there are other men in the movie who aren't evil. There's a couple incompetent ones. And there is at least one moral one, the old grandpa who refuses to sell to the evil villain. Of course, he's then the first victim. But he is an old white man. And of course, his granddaughter is a black girl who he, he loves dearly. So that's what I'm saying. Like, Okay. I'm, I'm with right. you. Anyway, I give this a solid bro rating. This is a 2.5 out of 5 stars. I know it sounds really bad with what I'm saying, but... This is one of those where it needed to have this stuff unpacked because there is a lot of cool stuff here, but it's undermined by the short runtime and all of these underdeveloped elements that, as William said, are they just trying to check boxes? Okay, that's a movie that's already out. Let's talk about some movies that are going to come out in Trailer Takedown. Trailer Takedown. First trailer. Avatar The Last Airbender is Netflix's live action adaptation of the Nickelodeon anime series. Now, full disclosure here, I was never a fan of the anime series. I tried to watch it. It was too video game-esque to me, where every episode they went to a different island, and then they solved a different problem, and then you had to go to another island, and the overarching conflict was never sort of progressed or progressed very, very slowly. I just got bored with it. It just didn't interest me. Now, in regards to this trailer, I will say I think that they captured, from what I remember, the visuals of the show very, very well. The only person I thought kind of didn't look like the character was Aang, the the main avatar guy the last airbender uh, but he looked enough like him that i figured it was just this was the best possible casting that they could do for the character uh i was struck by how the tone was similar to the terrible m night adaptation of this so i think there were elements of m night's movie that maybe he got criticized for that he shouldn't have been when even this adaptation which seems to like it's going to be successful at adapting it uh also had those elements in it but I I don't think I'm ever going to watch this. It's just, I'm not the audience. This is not a knock on this. I think there are much worse Netflix things that have been done. And I think William could probably talk about this a lot more than I could. But for me, this is a tackle. Tackle. Yep. So I think you're, I think you're right, Justin. It, it really did a fairly decent job of capturing some of the visuals. Um, I'm a little bit, it, it, it sounds, it looks like from the trailer, they're going to open with the airbender genocide, which like you said, does sort of, st- sort of set a darker tone, but I think for live action, you're going to have to go for a darker tone, right? 
And, um, you know, the last airbender, the animated series, much like you said, it was episode, it was the, it's sort of the last Nickelodeon episodic, um, anim- animated series, right. That, that was successful at least where, where it was sort of purely episodic in the sense, like you said, there were each episode hundred percent stands on its own. Um, the overall, uh, uh, thinking about casting, it looks pretty good. I think Iroh is, is pretty spot on. Um, the whole quote is, um, a quote from one of Iroh's, Uncle Iroh's speeches, um, to, uh, to Zuko. Um, if you haven't watched the original animated series, I would say, uh, much like Justin, you have to, uh, if you, the first season is very visit a place and visit a place and visit a place. The overall story that, while you're doing that, you're building up the characterization of the characters. There's things that are happening that uh, pay off in later seasons. No, I got it. And I figured at some point, like all of these different people he met would come back and help at different times. Yeah, like I've seen exactly. this story before. I knew what they were doing. It just didn't yeah. interest me. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think the, uh, I think that what remains to be seen is, um, the the one thing I would criticize M Night the most for, other than the complete rushed version of it, of the story, because they just rushed through it, was that the choreography was so awful. And that's one thing I can say from this trailer: the choreography looks pretty good, right? The special effects look similar to M Night in in the sense of like how the the bending works, but the choreography actually looks like they actually got some martial artists in to actually you know, do the choreography. So I am... hijack for two seconds. Sure. Um, I think the biggest failure of the M night movie was nobody thought to watch an M night movie and realize name one bit of choreography in any of his movies. William. Yeah. Nowhere. Nowhere. No, he doesn't have any. So nobody thought a, we're going to make him work with the choreography and he himself didn't think B I'm not very good at choreography. This movie demands martial arts. I should have a choreographer work with me. He wasn't able to see. He tried to make a pure M. Night movie out of something that he needed to do something different with. And I think yeah. that was his mistake and the studio's mistake. Yeah. Agreed. Um, and I, of course, have been digging deep on this. Um, looking, they released the titles uh, of the of the episodes. And uh, again kind of optimistic about this i mean it's gonna be no uh it's gonna be no arcane but uh it should be pretty good so this is a netflix and hug second trailer inside out 2 is the sequel to the smash hit pixar movie about the emotions in a young girl's brain and how they shape that girl and her core memories and so on and so forth um this trailer introduces a new emotion anxiety and I don't know. First of all, it was very jarring to me that they changed a couple of the voices of the emotions to the point that I had to Google why, like, Mindy Calling isn't discussed. Like, look, I'm not a Mindy Calling fan, but I thought she was perfect as discussed. And Bill Hager, a uh, hater, isn't in there as fear either. And then I learned it was all about contract negotiations and um, pay, money, dispute over pay. So take that for what what you will, but I found that very jarring. Uh, the other thing is, I don't know how I feel about the concept. I guess anxiety is an emotion, but I don't know how I feel about the concept of when you enter 
puberty, your teen years, adolescence, that suddenly you get the emotion of anxiety. I'm thinking maybe they could have done something different like the emotions started to lose control of themselves and there needed to be like some sort of rational mediator that had to develop. Like maybe there was like a baby mediator that was introduced in adolescence and as the emotions lost control of themselves the mediator had to grow and the based on what happens in the external world the mediator had to start helping the emotions modulate themselves better so they didn't get out of control because think about how over the top the emotions were in the first movie you could have gone even more and more with that and then shown that they had to be controlled or they had to be modulated in order to be healthy. Whereas instead we just have a whole new character of anxiety and we have to learn how to control our anxiety, which isn't that kind of the failing of our society right now that it's the idea that anxiety is its own thing that exists. And it's not a result of like too much of certain things or the thought patterns being off or things like that. So I'm not saying I'm not going to see this, and I probably will see it in theaters, but my excitement level for this is not very high because A, I thought the original movie was overrated, and B, this concept is worrying to me. So conceptually, even though I'm going to see this, conceptually I'm giving this a Netflix and hug. Netflix and hug. Yeah, I wasn't a fan of the first one. This one doesn't appeal to me. Uh, all the stuff that you pointed out is true for me as well. I think the other thing is, is don't they hit it hint at that there are two, right? The anxiety says we we wanted to yes. have a good first impression. So there's something else. And uh, Justin, isn't this just that stupid panda movie all over again? I don't know. This I I what I panda movie? Kung Fu Panda? The, no, Red. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. I I think I'll pass on this one. Tackle. Third trailer. Mean Girls is a adaptation of the musical adaptation of the original Mean Girls movie. That's a classic. Now, here's the deal. This movie does very little to show that this is a musical. I only know this is a musical for two reasons. One, my wife said something to me about it. And two, I looked it up. Now... The first movie is one of my favorite movies ever. I think it's absolutely hilarious. I think it's romantic in the best ways. And I think it has a great theme and great point to it. What I like about this trailer is it takes that and it seems to remix it in a way that could be very, very interesting. The idea that they bring back characters like or actors like Tina Fey and Tim Meadows to reprise their roles, but do them slightly differently. Like they literally show lines like his, like Tim Meadows' "Ah hell no" line, when the there's a fight going on, they show that line in the trailer, and he does it slightly different, to, differently. That is endlessly fascinating to me to see how they're going to do this differently. I also enjoy how they took like a minor character that was funny, the gym teacher, and they made it a big actor like John Hamm, and they gave him more to do. I think that's taking what works. And being smart about it because John Hamm can be very, very funny. And he has a very, very funny bit with TikTok in this trailer that got me to, to laugh pretty hard. Now, is this needed? Probably not. 
what does this say that they're willing to go back to this property and basically do the same thing over again? I mean, what does it say artistically if like you write a book and then you're like, oh, well, I'm going to do another version of this book later and I'm not going to disavow the previous version, say this is the better version. I'm just going to say this is a different version also by this. I don't know. But I'm the sucker who's going to be in the theaters. Hug. Hug. I, I can't support this kind of recycling. Uh, I know we're all about the environment and we want to recycle everything, but does the world need this? And and then when you told me it's a musical, that, Boo, makes, you it, whore. that makes it even worse. So, tackle. Tackle. Final trailer. Ghostbusters Frozen Empire is the sequel to Ghostbusters Afterlife. If you remember, I gave a glowing review of Ghostbusters Afterlife on this podcast. I think it's a tremendous movie. Uh, This movie looks like it could be an interesting continuation of it. However, I am concerned about this. I am concerned about it for the following reasons. When they show the scenes of like Paul Rudd as a Ghostbuster and then they have Patton Oswalt returning again, this movie looks closer to the all-female reboot of Ghostbusters in ways that I am uncomfortable with, where it's just like they're taking the trappings of Ghostbusters and putting it on other people. Where what worked about Ghostbusters Afterlife is it continued the thematic elements of the original Ghostbusters franchise, and they built on it in a way that made sense. I mean, even the title, Afterlife. Now, this movie goes back to New York City, and... The city is becoming frozen with fear, which on its own could work. However, how does this continue? Ghostbusters, the franchise, Ghostbusters, qua Ghostbusters. And you know I'm serious because I hate the word qua, right? That is my big question here. Now, am I going to see this? Yes, I absolutely love the three good Ghostbusters movies. I think they're very, very well done. However, I am very hesitant about this because nothing in this movie shows me any sort of thematic depth that was in Afterlife. Now, it's Jason Reitman again, so hopefully he does it properly. So we shall see. Very, very tentative hug. Hug? Yeah, Justin, I was worried that this this trailer makes it look like a Fast and Furious movie. It's about family, right? That's my concern. All that being said, I'm with you. I think this is something I after uh after uh the other Ghostbusters movie, I I want to I do want to see where they are going to go and I got to hold out some hope. So I think this is a very light hug for me as well. Hug? So I think the difference here William is that while the first one was written by Gil Keenan and Jason Reitman, it was directed by Reitman. Whereas this one is written by the two of them, but it's directed by the other one, Gil Keenan. So I think that's why we're seeing the difference in the directing, and that's what's worrying us. So I think this is just going to be, hey, what does Gil Keenan do? Because he doesn't have a lot of directorial um, credits to his name. City of Ember is probably his big one. I'm looking at his IMDb right now. Apparently he did the Poltergeist. Apparently it was a reboot of Poltergeist. I don't know about okay. that. 
or was original. I don't know. And another movie called The Boy Called Christmas that I've never heard of. I don't know. So it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see how the different directing changes because that's probably part of why it was done so well was because, um, oh, he's Jewish and he immigrated to Tel Aviv, Israel. We got to cancel him. He's oh, probably no. anti Hamas and <laughs> anti Palestinian. Well, but Jason Reitman, I mean, can you get a more Jewish name? Anyway, we'll see because it's the same writers, which. So we can hold should out. Should be fine. Yeah. Yeah. All right, William, what did we learn this trip? I learned that uh, we should give Belichick a chance. Justin, what did you learn this trip? I learned that we should always Belichick our premises because if we don't, we come up with bad conclusions such as Belichick should be fired and that Boy Meets World is all about collectivism in the way that Daniel Fischel will not Belichick her premises. That brings us to the end of this episode. I want to thank you for listening. If it wasn't for you, this would just be me talking in the corner of my closet like a crazy person. It still is that. You just make me feel a little bit better about myself. You help me take pride in what I'm doing because you take pride in listening. If you want to support the show, you can go to midside.com slash store, buy some merch, midside.com slash the cut, buy my book, midside.com slash Patreon, midside.com slash locals. That is how we keep the lights on. And as always, tell a female friend about the show. This concludes your journey into the midside. I'm Justin Emblesneski reminding you that if things get tough, take a step back and witness the farce. Who you gonna call? Maybe in this Ghostbusters, we'll find out that they went out of business because um, millennials only text. <laughs>